0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of 2 Kings. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, we continue with a section that, at least in terms of the details, is somewhat tough slogging. We've got various names and places uh, to keep in mind and to try to keep straight. If we zoom out, of course, I think this is important to do. I had mentioned this last week and by zoom out, I really mean zoom out quite a bit. Because all of the mentions of Hezael, um, of course from Syria, Jehu um, of Israel, and Elisha, the prophet that follows Elijah, these three names and all of the events that we're seeing really have their origin in God's promise to Elijah back in 1 Kings 19. So I thought what I'd do is just simply flip back there for a moment. This actually came up in our lectionary, I think this past Sunday and reminded me that, you know, I probably ought to flip back here so we could take a look at this. But if you remember, Elijah is fleeing from Ahab and Jezebel and Jezebel in particular, she vehemently wants the life of Elijah. And he goes into the wilderness. In fact, he goes down uh, to Mount Sinai, uh, to the place where Moses had a theophany, a a vision of God. And he too is given this vision. Of course, um, there's this uh, really interesting thing. There's uh, a wind that comes. The Lord's not in the wind. There's an earthquake. The Lord's not in the earthquake. There's a fire. The Lord's not in a fire. Then there's this storm. Sound of a low whisper. Elisha goes out, and converses with the Lord. And of course, um, you know Elijah thinks he's alone. The Lord comforts him. There are seven thousand others, and then gives him gives Elijah uh, these these three names of people who are going to enact God's justice and going to right the wrong, at least in a temporal sense. And even then, not really in a completely satisfying sense, but this is God's answer to Elijah's concern. And so if you look at uh, verse 15 of 1 Kings chapter 19, And the Lord said to him, to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hezael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So uh, Israel's Israel's population, of course, is in the millions in all likelihood, or at least well over one million, uh, a very small percentage here. But nonetheless, of comfort, Elisha isn't alone. And then these are going to be the executors of God's, of God's justice. So, taking us back then to 2 Kings, where we left off, um, particularly, we had finished verse or chapter 9, so we're picking up at chapter 10. And what have we seen? Well, we've seen uh, Hezael anointed by Elisha. We've seen Hezael, Uh, take vengeance upon the kings of Israel and Judah. And now we see Jehu taking vengeance on the house of Ahab and Jezebel. So that's really where we're at. We're in the middle of Jehu's execution of God's justice, which if we haven't already seen hints of it, (laughs) we're going to see more than hints of it. Jehu takes his job a little too seriously. He gets a little too into it. (laughs) In fact, transgresses God's commandment, um, and no longer views himself as, strictly speaking, the executor of God's justice. But his own personality, his own ego, his own sense of vengeance and aggression or greatness, or however you want to conceive of it, uh, take over. And Jehu ends up becoming a bit of a villain, um, a bit of a villain. Uh, certainly a mixture of hero and villain all right where are we then Uh, jehu has just executed jezebel famously infamously Uh, and now chapter 10 now ahab had 70 sons in samaria of course ahab's dead so jehu wrote letters and sent them to samaria to the rulers of the city to the elders we're we're remembering that Samaria is often the name of the capital city of the 10 northern tribes known as Israel so he's writing to the capital city to Samaria to the rulers of the city to the elders and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab all of whom would be heirs in this line you know to uh, to follow their father's footsteps or father Abraham's footsteps verse 2 Uh, well, this letter that he writes, or these letters are saying, now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons. Select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house but they were exceedingly afraid and said behold the two kings could not stand before him how then can we stand so he who was over the palace and he who was over the city together with the elders and the guardians sent to jehu saying we are your servants and we will do all that you tell us we will not make any one king do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter saying, if you are on my side and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them they took the king's sons and slaughtered them seventy persons and put their heads in baskets and sent them to uh, him at Jezreel when the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons he said lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning then in the morning when he went out he stood and said to all the people You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. All right, so um, maybe a little further, and then we'll pop over to some of the study notes. Then he set out and went to Samaria on the way when he was at Beth Echad of the shepherds. Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah. And we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Echad. Forty-two persons, and he spared none of them. All right, so the study notes at this point, Um, look at the study note on verse 13 next victims of the purge were 42 Judean relatives of King Ahaziah whose father had married Atalia uh, sister of the slain Israelite King Jehoram and um a study note on verse 14, parha, uh, excuse me, um, in regard to slaughtered them. As Jehu proceeded to establish himself on the throne, his wholesale executions went beyond the directive of the word of the Lord. See the note on verse 17. So um, I think if we continue with this study note, carried away by personal ambition rather than motivated by quote-unquote zeal for the Lord, God's appointed avenger of the house of Ahab went so far as to provoke the Lord to say, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, recorded in Hosea 1.4. And then if you drop down to the footnote on 17, Overall, Jehu fulfilled the prophecy as God had intended. However, in some matters, he went beyond what God had said. And a nice, I think, summary here. Jehu pretends to be zealous for the Lord's way while disobeying the Lord's word. Today, the Lord calls you to follow his word deliberately, yet not as an excuse for cruel judgment against others. Even the condemnation of God's law ultimately serves the peaceful, life-giving purposes of his gospel by which he forgives our sins and restores us. All right, so a nice enough summary, but... um, A few more verses in the text before we hit a little bit of a natural break, and we'll pause to reflect a bit. Verse 15, And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot and said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. All right, so. We see Jehu as God's executioner. We see him fulfilling that role and maybe going too far beyond that role. Um, in, what sense is this a, in what sense is this a type of Christ? Well, all the types of Christ, there are ways in which they're not Christ-like. There are ways in which they fail. <laughs> so that's true for the whole Old Testament. That's true for every type. In what sense could we say that Jehu is a, is a type of Christ? Well, that picture in Revelation of, of our Lord Jesus returning on the last day to drive out the wicked and um, those who had had caused many to apostasize. In the in the you know translating the, the the imagery and language of Revelation, it's the dragon and the two beasts and all who serve them are driven out by the Lord Jesus. Uh, in one place in Revelation, it's the, the, you remember the, the blood is described as being up to the bridle of the horse, that kind of thing. So there is a sense in which Jesus' return in judgment is one of executing God's justice upon the wicked. Unlike Jehu who oversteps his bounds, uh, Jesus certainly will not, but will execute judgment in righteousness. All right, well, Jehu's not done, but it does provide us at least an opportunity to stop and pause. I see a hand up here, and, and we'll entertain any uh, any questions or comments or anything else you might have pertinent to the text. I just, one area of concern.
1: On verse 12, he went out to Samaria. Didn't these people get the memo? <laughs> I'm thinking, why, you know, the this takes place, so everybody else is hearing what's going on. These people almost act like
0: they didn't turn on the news or something. Yeah, maybe Twitter was down that day, and they didn't know. You. No, I, <laughs> I think, I think your point, the point you just made, is the explanation. Just word, you know, you're living in the ancient world, and word doesn't travel all that fast, and you know, and, and then sometimes too, even if it does travel that fast, what are you going to do? You know what? It's not like you can hop on an airplane and fly to Mexico or something and try to disappear. I mean, you're you're there. The nations around you are hostile. Uh, you're at least at least somewhat closed in, hemmed in. I you know I don't know. I don't know. Even if you heard about it, what could you really do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see a world in which uh, I think both tyranny and justice are carried out very quickly at least and and very decisively sometimes with greater error of course than they are in our country in a quote-unquote civilized modern country and i mean obviously there are other places in the world where this kind of thing happens every day Um, it's just kind of alien and foreign to us okay so uh Jehu routing the house of Ahab slash Jezebel. We were introduced just in an offhanded way to this character, Atalia. She's going to come up really soon in chapter 11. I just simply want to point out that it's the first time we've really heard of her and we're going to get more information soon. It takes us into 18. Jehu strikes down the prophets of Baal. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers, and all his priests. Okay, well what the heck is going on? That's odd. Jehu is obviously deceiving them. That's the point. So J. I, in fact, the study note says, Jehu's treacherous cunning in luring the Baal worships to their, worshipers to their death richly deserved the Lord's rebuke in Hosea 1.4. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe what you see here is that God wills uh, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's, of course, not merely a New Testament sentiment. It's not like God woke up one morning and was like, OK, well, now everything's changed. Um, God desires not the death of the wicked. But that they would turn from their wickedness and live. I mean, that too is an Old Testament text. And so, you know, God isn't for the slaying of his enemies, even if they quote unquote deserve it. And so I think that that's what the study note is kind of pointing to, that, um, you know, this richly deserved the Lord's rebuke is recorded in Hosea 1.4. But aren't they promoting wicked rather than just doing wicked? Is, is there a difference? The priests of Baal? Oh, yeah, I mean, to be sure, they have a greater guilt than sort of the uh, religious consumer of that age. Yeah, they're the religious producers, and it's a false religion. Yeah, well, let's, I mean, let's meander through this text a little bit and see if anything in the text stands out to cause us to either agree further with the study note or maybe call the study note into question. So here's the deceit, of course. Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Obviously got the, got the priests of uh, Baal all excited. Um, and of course we see here too, not just the priestly class, but also his worshippers. Um, all his worshippers and all his priests. I mean, obviously a little hyperbole there. There wasn't a complete, uh, I don't know what you call it, genocide or whatever. <laughs> Continuing with uh, the end of verse or the latter half of verse 19, Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. (laughs) But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. I mean, of course, you can see in the backdrop of this that there's that this isn't anything new under the sun. You know, this is the kind of thing that kings did, because nobody's like, "Hey, wait a minute! Whoa, whoa! This is unprecedented. What are you doing?" Um, you know, obviously, this is the kind of thing that Ahab uh, might have done. Uh, he's doubling down on. Oh well, his deceit is that he's doubling down on Ahab's position. Verse 21, And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. They entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Okay, so I think that these are the p- yeah, and this is maybe to clarify my comment earlier. Um, These seem to be the exclusive worshippers of Baal. What we know is going on in Israel is there are Israelites who are worshipping Yahweh and Baal and this golden calf worship, whatever that means. Sometimes it's an overlap of one of the two, sometimes it seems to be an independent thing. There's a lot of this syncretism going on with your average Israelite sort of worshipping the various deities. Um, But these, then, are the exclusive worshippers of Baal, as the text seems to make clear. All right. Um, The second half of verse 24. Now, Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. Oh, you've got to love it. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. Um, And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. (laughs) Turned the house of Baal into a, uh, a rest stop. Yeah, a public restroom.
2: That is missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. It's like reversing. He offered them all as a sacrifice to their own God. <laughs>
0: yes, right. There <laughs> that's are kind yeah of funny. there are a number of ironies here. That yeah, is, thank that's you. That's
2: the best part when he says, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. And that would be all of them be sacrificed
0: to their own idol. Right. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. <laughs> Did
2: yeah. he um, make a sacrifice to bail,
0: though? Yeah, it seems as though he did. Mm-hmm. 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 I don't. You and don't had had get a, a sense property. in that. I don't know that you get a. This is a difficulty in reading this narrative. So the study Bible, which is frequently very, very safe and just sort of pedestrian in its take, and in many, many, many respects, that's its strength. I, I think. I don't know if it explicitly. I, I would need to go through here, but if obviously it sees it sees. The editors see um, Jehu is going too far in this act. I am a little agnostic toward that. I mean, yeah, yeah, and Hosea 1.4, and I suppose if I were to try to advocate for the other side, it's like, well, didn't Elijah slay, slay the prophets of Baal? I mean, this isn't exactly unprecedented. So anyway, I, th- I think there's a little room for interpretation. There's a little room for nuance here. Um, yes, J. Hugh does this. I mean, what is the take of the study Bible on that? I would have to look and see for sure if the study Bible th- you know, sees anything wrong with that. You know, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Because leadership has more responsibility because they're in leadership. Your
0: yeah, 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 greater, right.
1: And these people have a greater sin.
0: Right, right. So I yeah, I mean, okay, and your point Chris is if you look at if you look at the study note on 10:21 where the text itself says all the worshippers. So let's look at 10:21 in context here. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshippers of Baal came. In regard to the phrase all the worshippers, the Study Bible says Leaders, not simply every person who sacrificed to Baal, worshippers, literally servants. So you're you're looking at like you know probably some kind of kind of professional class of priests and worshippers or servants of Baal, and and then I was and I was kind of viewing them as the exclusive. I mean, if you for crying out loud, if you brought in every Israelite who had ever worshipped Baal, um, you, you know you're going to have seven thousand left, yeah. right? Right, roughly. Uh, so that's not what is in view, um, just just those who are most intimately connected. Um, yeah, obviously, obviously there's um, great culpability there. The study note on 18 and 19, verse 18 and 19, um, I have a great sacrifice to offer Baal. Kind of to your point, ironic statements declare yet high to Jehu's deadly intent against the Baal worshipers who had been close supporters of Ahab's dynasty. Yeah, I'm just combing the footnotes here to see if there's anything specific to his offering the sacrifice. Uh, in, In the study note on verses 24 and 25, in order to allay all suspicion, Jehu pretended to join in the worship of Baal. They don't really make a judgment on it as such. The inner room, they say, is similar to the most holy place in the Jerusalem temple. The pillar that's burned, likely made of wood, or at least wood was at the center, and so when it was cracked, it could burn. Yeah, let's see what the study note says, 18 through 27. In summary of this section, through deception, Jehu wipes out more potential rivals, the servants of Baal, who were closely allied with Ahab's dynasty. Again, Jehu demonstrates his wit and taste for irony. How regrettable that this clever man did not put his talents to work for the sake of proclaiming God's word. Rather than using your talents for personal gain, turn your God-given talents over to the Lord's service and the service of others christ whose wit confounded his detractors also spoke plainly the life-changing message of god's grace i don't know uh, <laughs> i mean it's true it's just
1: i don't know this is, this is before the cross and I, I have a hard time with that i have a hard time with that because that doesn't fit the narrative of what it is he's god's <laughs> bringing judgment on these people no i know i know and so I, i'm looking at that and i'm looking at Hosanna and I'm thinking it doesn't match
0: yeah yeah I it's interesting and I don't know because what, you, what you'd want to do to double check the sort of read and take that the study note is exhibiting here and there and I and I think again it's doing it on the basis of uh, that Hosea 1 4 and just I know that they quote that in fact I read it I just don't know where they quoted it if anybody sees that in the study note um i think that that's what they're using to guide their reading of the whole text is that is that the lens through which the whole text ought to be read or the whole life of jehu or these specific instances i think that there's a more nuanced case to be made there I think that you and I have kind of a similar, like not everything fits the cookie cutter all the time exactly. Yeah, the, yeah and that because seems to be I, a little what at, trying to do. I look at this is
1: the leaders and not the children. He's not taking it out on the families. True. He's taking it out on the leaders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the point I, I, I see is he's not going too far because he's not taking it out just the leadership who's responsible.
0: Right. And I agree. And I think that the business, too, about the latrine, turning it into a latrine. Remember when um, this is, we have to do this by literary criticism, you see. But remember when Elijah is on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. Remember how he, what, what does he say in regard to their god? You know, Yeah, where is he? Maybe he's on the john. You know, so, so you've got some parallels here. And true enough, true enough, you could see Elijah as a more faithful servant of God. I don't think anyone's going to argue that point. But do you necessarily see Jehu as out of bounds in what he does here? I don't know. I don't know. It's a more nuanced, more difficult case to make. Maybe I agree with the study note in the sense of the overall. And of course, I'll see 1:4, and I don't want to negate that in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, Jehu, and we're going to see from this text itself, like Jehu oversteps his bounds. I don't think that's an issue. But does he do so in this particular instance? That's maybe a more complex argument, you know. And I, I kind of find myself maybe just interested in discussing and dialoguing it rather than coming to some firm conviction myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm at, like Solomon. He like at Solomon, started looking at Solomon, Solomon who yeah.
1: started out right, and then as he went on, he kept getting worse and yeah. worse and worse. And that's what. But he started out great.
0: Yeah, yeah, to be sure, to be sure. Well, we would all see this as very culturally insensitive today. (laughs) To say the least. All right. Well, um, then we get to Jehu's reign before we sort of, uh, you know, largely leave off of um, Jehu. So uh, let's, let's do that. Let's do that. Verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, which again, look at the context, I mean just the text itself, there's no judgment here, and, and look at how it contrasts with the judgment that does take place in the next verse. I, I'm not so sure that the, that the author of this text sees the striking down of the prophets of Baal as, as some great overstepping of Jehu's uh, task. All right, verse 29, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So, I mean, again, just for our purposes of of viewing that episode with the prophets of Baal, 18 through um, 27, does the text itself cast any judgment on this act? I, I don't find it. In fact, I find evidence here in 28. Thus, Jehu wiped out uh, Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside. It seems the author seems to be indicating approval of the episode with the prophets of Baal. Uh, maybe not approval of the the whole of uh, uh, certainly of the whole of Jehu's. Uh, role, certainly maybe going too far in various other instances, I'm just not sure if that's the case here. And then um, what did Jehu tolerate? Unfortunately, this golden calf worship. The study note down on um, 10, 28, and 29 points this out. Three main religions competed for the hearts of the Israelites. Baal worship, the worship associated with the golden calves, which what we see biblically is that often overlaps the worship of Baal and Yahweh. Um, They call the golden calves Baal at times. They call the golden calves Yahweh at times. So at any rate, Baal worship, the worship associated with the golden calves, and the worship of Yahweh. Those are the three main religions competing for the hearts of the Israelites. Why is that? Well,
1: I mean, if they're worshipping the
0: cow, Oh, them? yeah, the golden calf, the golden calf. These are just prototype of the Colorado Buffaloes fans, the golden buffaloes, the golden calves, not too far off. Verse 30, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, Your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Again, I mean, there's approval insofar as it goes. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And again, this is a language for apostasy that's uh, 31 yeah at the, uh, the starting note on verse 30 the Lord commanded Jehu only specifically commended Jehu only specifically for overthrowing Ahab's ad- idolatrous house and then Israel's next four kings are obviously Jehu's descendants Jehoaz Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah. Okay. So, I mean, overall, Jehu, much to commend, and God does commend him, and he receives temporal reward, um, but also uh, some condemnation to be had, too, the, toler- the tolerance of the golden calves, um, and then not walking in the law of the Lord. I think it's a fair enough caricature of Jehu that he gets a little carried away and starts executing his own justice and what he thinks is right as opposed to, strictly speaking, what God does. All right, in uh, verse 32 then. In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hezael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. So remember, and I think from 1 Kings, if I remember, it's There's Hezael and whoever escapes the sword of Hezael, Jehu, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha. It's not so much the logic that matters. It's that there's going to be these three forces of God's justice. And so here we see then um, God's justice manifesting. We've seen it in Hezael before. Now Jehu, now Hezael again. Of course, Elisha, when he anoints Hezael, weeps because of what Hezael is going to do, the brutality that he's going to commit against Israel. Um, interesting that in this instance, the, uh, Hezael is seen as the arm of the Lord, that you know, is seen as um, the Lord, again, the Lord's executioner. It's the Lord who began to cut off parts of Israel. Hezael is the instrument. Hezael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites, and the Man- Manassites from Auror which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is, Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. We get sick of our presidents after uh, four years, eight years at best. <laughs> sometimes it's a lot less than that. Uh, you get a king, he, he lasts 28 years, sometimes sometimes less, obviously, and sometimes even more. All right, well, oh yes, please, please. OK,
2: first, I have two
0: parts. OK.
2: Could you delineate the distinction between the temple in Jerusalem and the synagogues
0: <laughs> to, to me my,
2: uh, the you know the main function of this temple is the sacrifice and, uh-huh. and of course, like Christ was bought, brought there for circumcision and celebration of the Passover and so uh-huh. forth and it's dawning on me this is like the highlight of Judaism pre uh, before Christ comes in its preparation. And it uh, focuses on uh, eventually what will be Lord's Supper.
0: Yes, right, right.
2: I see, like, the Baal worship and stuff, which somewhat imitates that. Well, imitates it as, you know, it's, it's abhorrent because it's, not just something somebody thought up they see what happens in the temple and then they pervert it horribly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you could give a background of the distinction between the temple and the synagogue as I see more like the word and then you know this kind of thing just is abhorrent and is uh, with our in, in Christian some parts of Christianity in America especially, this is just disregarded unbeknownst to christians when they don't uh, recognize the importance of the sacrifice Mm. and lord's supper
0: Mm. okay yeah well there's quite a bit to bite off there (laughs) quite a bit so this is you know off the cuff and so bear with me if this isn't you know entirely correct or as detailed of an answer as you might like but it's my understanding that the synagogues like we see them in the new testament for example have their origin in the exiled north so as the north is exiled by syria as as uh time rolls on even to a degree as the temple is reconstituted um you have these synagogues, these sort of local places of worship, which are places of of the word. They've got um, they've got a, a scroll from the Old Testament or a portion of a scroll from the Old Testament, and um, this is uh, these the synagogues as such take form roughly in that era. And I know I'm kind of pre- you know, presenting a broad amount of time there. Obviously, as the as the temple is reconstituted the second temple Uh, the sacrifices return there but the synagogues remain and coincide with and in some respects serve different functions I mean we might overlay upon it kind of our word and sacrament view and the synagogues have the word and they're not places of sacrifice the temple is the place of sacrifice and the temple is still a place of uh, pilgrimage for the Hebrew people, for the Hebrew faithful to go. Such that, and then you go through various, like, different captors in that, and we're starting to get into the intertestamental period in the time that leads up to Jesus. And so you have Alexander the Great and the Seleucids and all these kinds of people. Up into the Romans. And you see the endurance of synagogue and temple. Um, and and to where then the you can see that the, t- the synagogues start to take shape materially in the biblical text where Jesus, for example, goes and unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and reads it and says, this is fulfilled in your presence. In effect, I am this Messiah who's doing these miracles, who's overturning the curse. Okay, um, so there. I think that that's maybe phase one of your question, if I, if I got it right. Yeah. Um, There's, there's various critique of what happens in the synagogue as being um, the word being replaced with simply this human construct of obedience. So you get this kind of strange theology of we belo- we're Jews, we're circumcised, we belong to the synagogue, we receive the word of God, we're obedient to the word of God, we're not sinners. And all of this is, is a little bit well maybe a lot antithetical to the Hebrew faith as such to the scriptures themselves and so Jesus finds himself combating this um, mentioning that Gentiles for example are equal recipients of the grace of God pointing to the, the widow whom God saves through Elijah and the Syrian Naaman whom God saves through Elisha so Jesus butting heads against uh, some of the theological misunderstanding that had taken place in the synagogue context. You can think of the Pharisees. We, I think, sometimes we think of the Pharisees as like a clergy class. Uh, they're not. They're the lay class, and so their ideas are chiefly being built in the synagogue. And so you can see the aberration and errors taking place in the synagogue. You can see the aberration and errors taking place in the temple. Uh, in the first place, you know it's become a place of buying and selling rather than a house of prayer. It's become a place largely that um, we Lutherans would later call it ex opera operato. The sacrifices of God are being offered um, to make up for injustice, with no intent of bringing about true justice. Um, and so. They're being abused in a kind of perfunctory, religious, in an external sense, in a formal sense, as opposed to a true house of prayer, the true dwelling place of God with man, the true place of atonement. And so this is where where you see Christ very plainly saying that he is the temple and destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He is the place of atonement. He is the place of God's dwelling with man. He is the place of grace for sinners, the, the place of prayer and the one through whom all prayers are answered. And so you see all of that going on in the, in the New Testament. And then, and then of course, as we, as we shift away from synagogue and temple just in a historical view, um, and, and it's our Lord who, who sets this up himself, the church becomes constituted rather around word and sacrament and that's the point you were alluding to and so I mean it's clearly a an an oversimplification and a stylization to do this but insofar as the synagogue was word and the temple was sacrament these then become joined together as one and reconstituting the Christian church wherever word and sacrament is there the church is wherever word and sacrament is there Christ is so what do we have in churches today that have abandoned word as as the gospel chiefly um, or sacrament uh, the lord's supper chiefly um, we we see a kind of parallel error to what was taking place when jesus came and reformed everything (laughs) i suspect that this will continue on and only increase until jesus returns once more and finds that the same thing has has taken place in the church that he instituted the church of warden sacrament to where to where he comes and his return and his setting everything right is an ultimate and final reform um, such that like we see in at the end of revelation the dwelling place of god is with man we're tabernacled together in christ jesus etc so i think that there are parallels between the old testament era and the falling away from the hebrew faith the christian faith and the new testament era and the falling away from the christian faith uh, period And there are great parallels to be drawn there, um, and will continue to be drawn until our Lord's return. So I'm sorry, that was a lengthy answer to your question, but it was an important question. I thought I'd do the best I could for you. Um, One second, we'll get back to you. I have a
2: question. Um, I don't know has to do with Paula's question, but I'm thinking about that where Paul and Peter had a disagreement about circumcision. Can you... um... We call
0: that yeah. Well, I re- um, so, so I'm recalling the instance where um, now of course the the context is the Judaizers and circumcision, but yeah. it was specifically seemed to be the case that Peter was refusing to eat with Gentiles right. because they weren't circum Gentile Christians, right. and would only eat with Jewish Christians. Yeah. And Paul, had so this is the thing you're talking about, yeah. And and Paul is irritated with that because Peter's actions are betraying a an anti-Christian dogma that is that there is, in fact, a distinction on the basis of circumcision. And those who are circumcised are somehow clean in a way that those who are uncircumcised. And Paul's whole point, the the New Testament's whole point, is that Jew and Gentile are one man in Christ, redeemed by Christ. And whatever wall was between them has now been destroyed by the crucifixion of Jesus. I don't know not strictly yeah. speaking other than you have a judaizing element and why do we call it a judaizing element because it was the Jews uh, in Jesus day who had made the Hebrew faith and the Old Testament scriptures about fulfilling the ceremonial law and thus being right in the we're sight of stuck God in the law right they were kind of stuck in the law yeah and but mm-hmm. but here not even particularly the moral law Um, The moral law was just sort of their assumption. And even then, I mean, Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy because they'll say, hey, we kept the Sixth Commandment, we've done nothing. But of course, I've given my certificate of divorce to however many wives, right? (laughs) So, I mean, so Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy toward the law. But yet, the Judaizing tendency is, I mean, uh, the sad fact is, is it's quite, quite, Well reflected in Roman Catholicism of our day, where if you buy into Roman Catholicism, it's like you're buying into the rite and the ritual and the, and the obedience and the this, that, and the other. But what you're not, you know, buying into, is the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, the sacraments as gifts of His grace to us, that God's, God's mission not only to us but to all men, that you know that we'd all turn from our wicked ways and be saved. You know you can see the way in which insofar as Rome has turned away from that it's very it's very parallel to how the Jews themselves of Jesus' day had turned away from that, exhibited in Paul, for example, you know before his conversion yeah. okay, please
2: um, I suppose uh, this kind of um, pointed to this question that I developed that we're reading through Luke and in the Last week after Palm Sunday, before the crucifixion, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're coming up to Christ and saying, by what authority are you saying these things? Mm -hmm. My impression is, and I may be way off, but was there a designated person, a rabbi for the synagogue and so forth, or could you, it was a kind of like a speaker's corner and the rabbis would be speaking, but other people could ask them questions and, and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, my sense is and it's... And the
2: same in the temple, I wondered
0: <coughs> The temple may have had more structure than the synagogue. There's From our vantage point, where we've been given the office of the Holy Ministry and kind of this clear idea of the preaching, the public preaching office, from that vantage point, which to us is clean and tight for the most part um i it's my impression i'm willing to stand corrected if someone you know can do that um it's my impression that it's much more fluid in the i mean there are certain rules like you have to be of a, a male and of a certain age and um have have demonstrated some sort of Uh, been been known in the community and have demonstrated some sort of biblical acumen you know that i guess that's how we would put it some some ability with the torah they didn't just let anyone up there on the one hand but on the other hand they didn't ask you for your seminary credentials either right Um, so so you think to yourself like what formal training if any did jesus have well none that we're aware of he grew up in the synagogues he's he's known he's not a stranger but he's invited to uh, preach at um, the synagogues and um, you know in in contrast that you'd have someone like Paul who is trained under Gamaliel who does have whatever certificates one might need and he's welcome to preach in the synagogues and so from our view it seems to be a little more fluid it's not hey anyone who feels like they have something to say can just stand up and say it in the synagogue you don't ever get that impression But you get the, so so there is some gatekeeping, for lack of a better word, there is some distinction there, but you also don't ever get like a a straightforward list of requirements, at least not that I'm aware of, of who can speak in a synagogue and, and who can't. Now, maybe in some of the extra biblical writings you do, that's a possibility, not in the biblical writings themselves. Where, where Paul articulates the qualifications of the public office of the ministry, the preaching office in the Christian church, it's not as though this is received as something new either. So it may well be that he's paralleling some sort of norms, extra biblical norms even, um, that were present for synagogue preachers. I don't know. Um, but it is, it is of interest that Paul draws these kind of hardline qualifications for the office and nobody says, hey, where are you getting this? This is a brand new thing or this is unheard of. You know. Okay. Well, uh, for those of you listening online, hopefully uh, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was worth some of your time, even if it was a, a digression. I mean, these are important things and challenging things for us to wrap our heads around. Okay. So we have, um, boy, where did I leave off? I had. Did I go? Th- yeah. Are we starting eleven? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah, the author leaves us off with just this understanding of uh, Jehu and then bringing back to mind Hezael. That so along with Elisha, these are, the th- these are the three executors of God and um, the answer uh, to God's promise that he gave to Elijah all the way back in 1 Kings 19. Okay, well, we've only got a few minutes, but I guess we'll kind of jump in here. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, we are down in Judah now, where, where we've been focusing our attention with Jehu primarily in the north. Now we're in Judah in the south. Now, when Atalia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal family. Okay, well, what's going on here? Um if you look at the study, note, Natalia is Ahab's daughter, the mother of Ahaziah. Ahaziah is slain by Judah because he's a rival. Thus, oh yeah, sorry, Jehu, thank you. Uh, thus um, leaving Natalia around. Okay, well why does she destroy all the royal family? Made herself the sole ruler. She almost succeeded in eliminating all possible contenders for the throne, including her own grandchildren. Nice lady. <laughs> she, <laughs> <laughs> she may have learned such brutality from her father's wife, the infamous Jezebel. Oh. Yeah. If <laughs> <a> <laughs> jory, yeah, if Jezebel's your stepmom, yeah, if Jezebel's your stepmom, most grandmas give out two-dollar bills. <laughs> she might kill you, Atalia. Not a nice lady. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, in uh, in Jezebel, in Atalia, in the kind of um. Immorality, the the bloodshed. You remember, you remember um, the harlot that rides on the beast. Yeah, and and um, so you've got this type, uh, this biblical type that's from the Old Testament, moves always forward. uh, uh, all the way forward into Revelation. Revelation kind of picks up on this this murderous woman who, if she's not physically adulterous, she's spiritually idolatrous, you know, spiritually adulterous, and like a harlot, and um, bringing in apostasy, murderous. Remember, she's drunk on blood. And so, in Atalia and Jezebel, you've got foreshadowings of this kind of final biblical image. Okay, so... um, Verse uh, two. But Jehoshaba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. Yeah, she saved him, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus, they hid him from Atalia so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Atalia reigned over the land. All right, so that's that's pretty incredible. Let's just check out the study note here on verse 2. In regard to Jehoshaphat, we are not told whether she survived the purge. Joash... Ahaziah's infant son escaped the purge because his aunt uh, Jehoshaphat hid him. Um, Yeah, a little like Moses, uh uh-huh, yeah. Um, Now, in regard to a bedroom, Hebrew denotes an inner chamber at the palace, which may have been used for sleeping, for storing bedding, or even as a restroom. All right, so six years he was a mere infant when hidden. Joash would have been weaned at age 3 or 4, and then in regard to this phrase hidden in the house of the Lord, Joash stayed in the priestly quarters of the temple. So that seems to be the way in which Joash survives, grandma dearest. Yeah. Yeah, by by hiding out. Okay. And then what you see in the next heading is Joash, this very figure we've been talking about, is anointed king in Judah. And you can see that that's a lengthier section. It takes us through the end of chapter 11, seeing that we have less than a minute left. I'd like to just pause there for this week. We'll pick up with uh, Joash being anointed king in Judah next week. The Lord be with you.